It was 1927. This building was under construction when the famous St. Louis-born poet and essayist T.S. Eliot became a Christian. He had been nominally Unitarian, but very much a non-believer when he was baptized and confirmed into the Church of England. Eliot had always been thankful for his time in St. Louis. He, he actually said that being raised in St. Louis, he credited it as the greatest environmental factor in his success as a writer. He never could have written what he wrote had he not been from this place. And that same year, 1927, uh, he renounced his American citizenship in order to become a citizen of Great Britain. Prior to his Christian conversion, Eliot had belonged to London's Bloomsbury Group. It was a small, informal association of artists and writers and intellectuals who lived and worked in the Bloomsbury area of London. But when news of Eliot's Christian conversion became public, the Bloomsbury Group responded with shock, anger, and disgust. The writer Virginia Woolf, the de facto leader of the group, penned the following letter to one of her peers. She wrote, I have had the most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. You can hear the cynicism in Wolf's words. T.S. Eliot, having previously been one of the most intelligent, brilliant, creative, artistic, and sophisticated men she had ever known in her life, was now dead to her. So deep was her disgust at the thought that he might come to different conclusions than her about the existence of God. Cynicism is a powerful thing. It makes us feel so righteous and sophisticated and sightful and brave and right, unlike all those other people who are all frauds. But it can lead a soul very, very far from Jesus. We're going to look at the record of the suffering of our Lord Jesus on the cross and the suffering today that he went to on his way to the cross, in this case, in his trial before the Jewish leadership. This is Luke's gospel, the 22nd chapter, beginning in the 63rd verse. This is God's gospel. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy! Who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. 
What do we see here? First, we see the unbelieving world's deep cynicism. Cynicism is an inclination to believe that other people are all motivated purely out of self-interest. It's a, a judgment upon others. A cynical person assumes that no one is really motivated by principle or by love, that no one acts out of moral conviction or ethical view or, or compassion. A cynical person is driven themselves by self-interest, and they assume that everyone else is driven by self-interest. We see cynicism in both the guards and in the religious leaders. The guards mock Jesus. They don't really care who he is. Their only interest is in projecting their own feeling of being powerful, their will to power, uh, feeling strong at another's expense. Uh, the men who were guarding Jesus, we read that they were mocking him and they were blindfolding him. And then they would hit him and say, prophesy, who hit you? Now, they weren't honestly asking Jesus to help them understand who was beating Jesus. They knew they were doing it. He was blindfolded. They were being cynical. Uh, and the religious leaders are even worse here, given that they have greater authority and responsibility to point people toward the word of God. They say, if you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus answers. He sees their heart. He sees their cynicism. They don't really want to know who he is. It's about their power. Jesus answers, I, if I told you that I'm the Christ, you wouldn't believe me. And seeing their cynicism, he says, and if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. So they're not trying to figure out the truth. They're being cynical. Their question wasn't a sincere effort to understand. It was all fake. Their only interest is in maintaining and projecting their power. And so Jesus refuses to even honor their question. It's one of the only times we see that Jesus refuses to, to honor and acknowledge a question. Uh, cynicism distorts the facts in order to fit my personal advancement. And Jesus says, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Uh, why does Jesus say if he asked them that they wouldn't answer? Well, because he understands. They're not trying to make an actual assessment of who he is. They just want him eliminated because he's threatening their power. It's, it's cynicism. Um, cynicism is like when the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, tells Western nations that if they continue assisting Ukraine, they're only going to extend the suffering of the war. Now, why is that cynical? Because if he was really concerned about the suffering of the Ukrainian people, he would pull out his troops. He's the one who invaded them. He's the one who's killing them. He's the one who's abusing their children, their spouses, destroying their homes, blowing up their hospitals. He's being cynical. He doesn't care about extending the war. It's about his power. His words don't mean what they really say, what they seem to say. He seems to be saying, oh, I'm so concerned about the people of Ukraine and you Europeans and Americans, by giving them weapons, you're just extending their suffering. Liar! Liar! You don't care about that. It's pure cynicism. It's, it's the heart of evil. He's wanting power because he wants to be the new Peter the Great who restores Russia's greatness by invading and conquering Ukraine. Cynicism doesn't care what's true. It doesn't mean what it says. It doesn't say what it means. It assumes everybody is disingenuous, and it is itself disingenuous. What matters is my own personal advancement, the will to power. Principle is nothing. Truth is nothing. It's like when Russian news, uh, I don't want to keep picking on Russia, but um, when Russian news uh, reports 
about every five days, there's a report of some Russian official or political figure or critic of the Putin regime um, dying by accidentally falling out of a hotel room or an office building. And everybody who reads it understands that they were pushed out. But the report in the news is always that they accidentally fell out of a seventh floor window. If I were working for the Russian government, I would want a room without a window just to be safe. But you see, it's, it's cynicism. People know it's not true. It's all about projecting power and fear upon the populace. In our own country, we see so much cynicism in political discourse where different sides in a political and cultural war often project motives onto each other and they're often the most horrible motives describing other people's perspective in ways that they themselves would never recognize. Um, Last year, the Edelman Trust Barometer found that in the United States, distrust is now the dominant cultural emotion. Six out of ten people say it's their default to distrust everything anybody says until they've proven to be trustworthy. Uh, and this should, should concern us because we get caught up in it ourselves, and the Bible says that love always trusts. The distrust, the cynical disposition... God hates our cynicism. People think that by projecting cynicism that they're showing that they're insightful. Look at me, how knowing I am to see right through everybody else. I'm so clever. You know, it's, it's the cheapest, most unsophisticated type of pseudo-intellectualism. And because it's projecting onto other people our, our own selfishness. And it, it distorts the fact in order to further my self-interest. And, and Jesus, you know, experiences it here from the guards who are beating him, asking, who, who, who's hitting you? Prophesy to us. He experiences it from the religious leaders who are asking him if he's the Christ with no concern over whether or not he is, just wanting to eliminate him. Uh, cynicism is a means of justifying ourselves. That negativity uh, enables me to think that I'm one of the real people or alternately it allows me to, to further my own self-interest or whether it's by, by furthering my power or making me feel like I'm respectful or insightful or smart or, 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 or righteous or successful or whatever. You know, there's a pride that goes into claiming that everybody else is fake, but I'm not fake. I'm the genuine article. Um, we see here the cynicism that pervades our world, whether religious or irreligious, and yet in that cynicism we see people missing Jesus. The Lord, the author of life, is right there in their presence. Uh, he's, he's not unwilling to acknowledge who he is. He's the ultimate judge of earth and heaven who will stand at the right, who will be seated at the right hand of God the Father at the last judgment. And, and it's interesting, you know, it's, it's Jesus' own words that they use to convict him. You know, they, they ask, are you the son of God? Uh, a more literal translation would be, because it's not real clear if they're expecting, uh, a, a, it's not exactly clear what they're not saying, you're the son of God, right? And they're not saying, you're not the son of God. They're, they're kind of like, oh, so you're the son of God. And then Jesus says, you're right. And they're like, well, wait a minute. I'm not saying you're the son of God. I'm, I'm asking you. But, and then they say, we don't need any more testimony. We've heard it from his own lips. To be seated at the right hand of God. For a Jewish person in Palestine in the first century, that would have been considered the ultimate blasphemy. Remember, first century Jews did not speak God's name, Yahweh. Uh, they would not write God's name. Often they'd just have a letter or a line. 
uh, they would say instead of, of Yahweh, they'd say Adonai, which is lowercase lord or master, um, because they considered speaking God's name to be blasphemy, uh, because God is so holy and so transcendent to even speak his name is forbidden. Uh, to even write it is forbidden. And then here comes Jesus saying that he's going to share God's throne in heaven and be judge of all. You know, that's a little more than saying God's name, which was already considered blasphemous. That's equating himself with God because in the, the Hebrew Bible, by God's grace, certain people were able to stand before God, standing to attention, but no one was able to sit with God. To sit with God would be to equate yourself with God's authority, with God's person. Uh, and, and so Jesus is here claiming an absolutely exclusive identity as the Son of God, as God the Son. Now, you say, okay, Greg, uh, surely you're not acting with the assumption that Christianity is the one true religion and all other religions are false. Uh, you know, these claims of Jesus are so exclusive, uh, you know, how can there just be one true religion, you ask? And, and I would say that every religion or philosophy, every perspective has something that's true within it. You know, we're all made in God's image. We all have the ability to make observations. And, uh, and, and there are a lot of different religions and a lot of different views of religions. And modern inclusivism, which says that there can't just be one true religion, that they're all either equally true or equally false, you know, that is really a very exclusive viewpoint as well. That's every bit as exclusive because it's saying that my view of religions is the only right one, and if you differ with my view of religions, my inclusive view of religions, you are absolutely wrong. And I don't see how that's any less exclusive of a truth claim than what Jesus is here making about himself. And I don't know why we would even want to to buy a view of religions that's basically a white European colonial approach that says all other views of religions are must be subsumed under our view. Uh, I don't know why we would want to privilege or bias a 21st century perspective as if our own era is the pinnacle of insight and truth. Uh, you know, there are times when we get together and think about things our grandparents believed in snicker. And in our pride, we don't realize our grandkids someday are going to sit around a kitchen table and laugh about things that we absolutely believe to be true. Uh, the real question is not which truth claims are exclusive, because they're all exclusive. Um, even if they're claiming they're not, they're saying my view is the only one, and you're wrong if you disagree with it, which is exclusive. The question is which exclusive truth claim accords with reality, what's actually true. Uh, which truth claim enables us to love people who we differ with? Um, which exclusive truth claim can transform us into people who can have our strongly held convictions without judging people who think we're wrong? And on all those questions, I see the beauty of the truth claims of Jesus here. To have a savior, an absolute truth that died for his enemies to have to be wrong and have to have God send his own son to die in my place because I'm that wrong gives me a humility whereby I can pray for and love people who think I'm nuts, who think I've thrown my life away to follow Jesus. Uh, it's the absolute truth claim that Jesus is making that actually enables me to love and live in harmony with people who, who, who believe things that I used to believe as a former atheist. You know, if, even if you don't believe in God, you should hope this is true. You should hope Jesus is telling the truth. 
because it's the only ticket we have to live beyond this life. It's the only hope we have that a trillion years from now, after all the stars have gone out and there won't be any human beings left to know that anybody ever existed, that it won't have all been meaningless and absurd. The thought that it's actually true, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. You know, but have no doubt about it. Jesus is making an absolutely objective claim that he is the son of God in reality and that he will be on the throne of God from that point forward. And Jesus has been saying this all along. You know, this isn't just this one spot here. He has claimed the authority to forgive sins against God. And, you know, you have to understand that's a big deal. Like if Bobby steals Susie's clock radio, you remember those? And then Fred says, don't worry, Bobby, I forgive you for stealing her radio. That doesn't make any sense. Whose forgiveness does he need? Susie's. And he needs to give the radio back. That thing's a collector's item. It could be worth hundreds of dollars on eBay by now. Uh, and, and so when Jesus says, I can forgive sins against God, he's making a pretty exclusive claim about who he is, whose authority he carries. He claims here to be the judge of humanity at the last day. He says that he has the ability to grant eternal life. He claims to be greater than God's temple. The temple was the, the throne room of God. The house of God. There's only one thing that could be bigger and more important than the house of God, and that's God himself. He claims that God's kingdom is his kingdom, and, and then he keeps letting people worship him, like the magi who worship him when he's a toddler, like in Matthew 14 when he's walking on water during the storm and everybody starts worshiping him. In Matthew 28, after the resurrection, the disciples all worship him, and he's not an angel because in the book of Revelation, when John sees an angel... He freaks out and falls down and starts to worship it. And the angel says, don't do it. Worship only God. And Jesus receives it. He identifies himself as the son of man in Daniel's vision of heaven, the son of man who, who walks before the ancient of days, who is like a son of man, human, and yet has glory and sovereign power and will rule for all eternity and all the world will worship him. I mean, that's a pretty exclusive claim here. Uh, you know, checking your cynicism. What are you doing with Jesus in your heart, in your life? What are you doing with Jesus? Are you coming to terms with who he is and what he claims and the absolute claim he has upon your life? Um, the guards missed Jesus. The religious leaders missed Jesus. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about how there are only really three options once you come to terms with the fact that Jesus did make some pretty exclusive claims about who he was. There are only so many possibilities. Either he is, in fact, the son of God, or he's not. And if he's not the son of God, then either he knew it or he didn't. And if he's not the son of God and he didn't know it, he's crazy. We're talking serious mental illness, like, uh, like somebody who, who thinks he's a poached egg. And if he's not the son of God and he doesn't know it, and he does know it, then he's, he's lying through his teeth, and he's one of the most deceitful, wicked teachers in human history. And if you rule out that he's crazy, and you rule out that he's wicked, then the only other option is that he's the Lord, who he claimed to be. Um, there's an urgency here. Uh, and this is calling us to a radically different way of understanding and coming to, to convictions about what's actually true. You know, in, in American culture, we tend to define what's true based on what we like, like we're picking out, you know, our favorite ice cream flavor, 
and we think, oh, this is a neat thought. I'll believe that. And, and yet that's not how, like, St. Paul came to understand what was true. St. Paul didn't like Christianity. He hated Christianity. He couldn't stand Jesus. He was actively persecuting followers of Jesus. He was there giving his approval when Stephen was stoned to death for his testimony to Jesus. He was on his way to Damascus to stamp out Christianity and persecute the church. And then he sees the resurrected Jesus and he knocks him off of his horse and he's sitting here looking at Jesus and he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he sits there and he thinks, I hate this. I hate Christianity. I can't stand Jesus. And yet here he is, alive, resurrected from the dead, standing in front of me, knocking me off my horse. And I don't like this, but I have to deal with it. Because it's true. And that's what Jesus is, is asking us to, to deal with the reality of the claims that he has made and to allow them to sink in and shape us. There's an urgency here. You know, it's the most important decision you could ever make in your life is, is what you do with Jesus. Because if he is, in fact, God in the flesh, if he is, in fact, the eternal power and intelligence behind the cosmos, immense and, and fiery movement of love that has come and become incarnate in human nature in order to redeem us, you know, hear what he's saying. And yet many didn't get it. Our cynicism can act as a pair of blinders that keeps us from seeing Jesus. Um, I read uh, one author describe her own cynicism and how it almost destroyed her. Uh, she writes this. She says, I went my own way after college and went to a number of churches, Baptist, Presbyterian, Charismatic, all kinds of churches, and here and there and everywhere. But for, for five years or so, I wasn't going to church at all. I was tired of the whole church thing. I was pretty cynical, and I was very judgmental. She continues, but a very significant thing happened to me. A close friend of mine committed suicide. It really shook me up. It made me realize that it's kind of cool to be cynical, but it can be really dangerous, too. You really don't grow spiritually when you're busy criticizing and sounding arrogant. I made a big turning point there and opened myself up to looking for spiritual community. You see, it feels cool to be cynical, to roll your eyes at all the Christian people, but it can poison your soul. It can blind you to Jesus. There's an arrogance to it. There's a self-righteous judgmentalism to it, and it will destroy you. It destroyed these guards. It destroyed these religious leaders. It blinded them to salvation that God was giving them as a free gift, and it's a tragedy. You think, how could they miss it? Jesus was right there. He had performed miracles. He had raised the dead. You think, why did they grab hold of Jesus while there was still time? You know, it's like a, it's like a guy who, who knows, he lives on the coast, and he knows a, a, a huge Category 5, you know, you know, hurricane is on its way, and it's, it's very, very bad. And he says, it's all right. I'm going to ride it out. I got a, a good, well-built house. I'm back some from the beach, and I'm going to be okay. And he goes inside, he locks it up, and, and, and then he goes down into the, the first floor and it's because it's further away from all the wind, and yet then the first floor starts filling with water. And then, and then soon he goes up to the top floor, and then the roof blows off, and, 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 and you think at any moment he could lose it. And then afterwards, the, the clouds clear, and the sun comes out, and he steps outside into a puddle with an electrical wire in it. And at every level, you think, why didn't he get out when there was time? 
And that's the word to us. Jesus is calling you. What are you doing with Jesus? Are you doing the religion thing? Or are you following Jesus? See, in Jesus, we see the antidote to our human cynicism, the cynicism that wants to judge everybody else for their motives, roll our eyes at them, sneer, think they're all fake, I'm real. The cynicism that twists reality to make myself feel smart and clever and righteous. Note that the only testimony in this trial was the testimony of Jesus himself. They didn't bring in anyone else to testify. Just him, only one guy on the witness stand, only Jesus, and he provides the only testimony to convict himself. He uses powerful words. Are you the son of, you're the son of God. You're right. I'm the son of God. You're correct in your assessment. Jesus isn't doing anything at all to protect his own life here. He has every intention of going to the cross. He's the opposite of cynicism. It's self-giving love, genuine love, pure love, self-oriented love, love for your sake that he would face the wrath of God and absorb it into himself and be separated from the love of God the Father for your sake so that you and I could be saved. He could have just performed some miracles and get out of it. He had walked through a crowd that was trying to throw him off the temple mount down into the valley below. He could have gotten out of this if he wanted to, but he didn't. He didn't. He went to his death as a lamb quietly going to the slaughter by its own will. He was in complete control through this entire turn of events. These religious leaders could not convict Jesus without Jesus' own testimony, which he freely gives they say, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips, literally in the Greek, from his own mouth. Jesus chooses to go to the cross by his own words. And he was in complete control the entire time. And that's what's so disturbing. These show trials are absurd when the one on trial is going to judge earth and heaven one day. He says so as much. Uh, Daryl Bach, the biblical scholar, writes this. He says, the soldier's reaction shows how insulting the world's rejection of Jesus can be. Cynicism runs strong in many who reject Jesus. Yet the reader is also to see God's plan moving inexorably to its turning point. But the movement is orchestrated by the one on trial, the one with true authority. With the passive aid of the Roman authorities, the Sanhedrin may send Jesus to his death. But Jesus has noted that when the execution is completed, a seat awaits for him in heaven at God's side. And from there, he will exercise the permanent authority that God has given to him. Bach asks, which judge does the reader prefer to stand before? The rejecting Sanhedrin with their mocking soldiers or the one who will be at the right hand of God. For Luke, it is heaven's courtroom that counts. The judge's chair stands occupied by the one who was judged guilty here. Guilt has been declared on the innocent, but it's the innocent one who will sit at God's right side. For Luke, Jesus' claim is not blasphemy. It is deadly, serious truth. Christ himself always driving history, never driven by it. He is the Lord and he will have the final word. He's driving history toward the cross as the great reversal, the great antidote 
to the world's cynicism, the cross that enables me to say, I am wrong and you, Lord, are right, the cross that enables me to love my enemy instead of judging my enemy, the cross that frees me up to be wrong and not right and frees me up to see what's right in everyone else even if they're often wrong. Jesus coming to earth, this act of pure love, it's the opposite of our cynicism. Love has become flesh. Love has come to us who are lost. Love has given up its power in order to rescue us because his loyalty to us, his sinful, rebellious subjects, he loves us enough to destroy his own life to gain us. And when you experience that kind of love, it melts the hardest, most cynical heart you no longer need your cynicism to justify yourself because Jesus is justification enough. And his life then enables us to love friend and foe alike, to think the best of other people and not the worst, to judge ourselves instead of judging others because his love liberates us from our cynical need to judge the motives of other people or to advance our own selfish self-interest because here alone we see a God who saves the world by giving up power. After his conversion to Christ, T.S. Eliot published what some consider his greatest poem. It was called Ash Wednesday, which is this week. In it, he contemplates how the word, that is Jesus, the word of God, is unheard in the busyness and loudness of the modern age. We instead... He says, mock ourselves with falsehood, with cynicism. And he prays for those who waver between the profit and loss, knowing that what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? He speaks in this poem of the face of Jesus. He speaks of the voice of Jesus. He says, there's no place for grace for those who avoid the face. There is no time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. He speaks of the temptation to turn back to his unbelief, to his atheism. And there is in Ash Wednesday, his poem, a hope where in earlier work like Proof Rock, you saw meaninglessness and emptiness and despair. Here we see God's grace spoken of, stewarded by the church, which he calls the Blessed Sister, the Holy Mother, the spirit of the baptismal fountain, the spirit of the garden. He writes, where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here, there is not enough silence. Not on the sea or on the islands. Not on the mainland, in the desert or the rainland. For those who walk in darkness, both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here. No place for grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. Although I do not hope to turn again, that is back to his unbelieving past. Although I do not hope, although I do not hope to turn, wavering between the prophet and the loss in this brief transit where the dreams cross, the dream cross twilight between birth and dying. Bless me, Father, though I do not wish to wish these things from the wide window toward the granite shore, the white sails still flying seaward, seaward flying on broken wings. This is the time of tension between dying and birth, the place of solitude where three dreams cross between blue rocks, but when the voice is shaken from the yew tree drift away, let the other you be shaken and reply, blessed sister, holy mother, 
Spirit of the fountain, spirit of the garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks, our peace in his will. And even among these rocks, sister, mother, and spirit of the river, spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated and let my cry come unto thee. Here, the cynical poet encountering Jesus knowing the temptation to turn back, knowing the, 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 the ways of his own heart that can be blown about by the wind, nevertheless sees hope, sees peace in God's will, sees hope and salvation, and the cynical heart has been transformed into a hope, into a, a grace, into a joy in the salvation that Jesus gives to set us free from cynicism to hope. Let's pray.